Bibles together to Ephesians chapter 5. We will bring to completion this chapter today, and then we will begin chapter 6 next week. So we have one chapter left in Ephesians. We have been taking our time working through the book as a whole, and specifically most recently in this short of sort of a series within a series, if you will, because here in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, down through chapter 6, verse 4, and in some ways, all the way down through verse 9, you find instructions about how Christian families are to live together. This is perhaps the most well-known portion of Ephesians for those people who are relatively savvy and aware of the Bible. And therefore, if we're not careful, it's the kind of passage that can be passed over lightly because we think that we know everything. But those of us who've been around for a while, who've been sojourning with Christ for some time, are learning progressively that there is always something to learn. There is always something that God's Spirit uses to change us things perhaps we haven't seen before. Perhaps we see things in a new light, and sometimes it's just seeing the same thing again, something that we have failed to embrace or we have neglected. And as we find ourselves now at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, we will spend our time in verses 31 through 33 today. This is the profound apex of this section on marriage And Paul reveals here in these three verses a mystery to the church in Ephesus that we embrace still today, 20 centuries later. And that is that when we find ourselves in this drama of marriage, and our marriages, all of our marriages, are a drama in one way or another. Some of our marriages are more dramatic than others, perhaps because of struggle and trial, perhaps because the arc of our story is a little bit more dramatic than others. But regardless, our marriages are all dramas, for we're all being transformed, changed through marriage. For those of us who've been married for a while now, we can see the arc of that story. And who knows it better than us? We have lived in close proximity, many of us now, to another person, our spouse, for a number of years now, some of us a number of decades. And we are not the same people that we used to be. I remember when I first met my wife, my in-laws are actually here today, who, by the way, are the best in-laws in the whole world. And I don't just say that to butter up to I don't have to butter up to them anymore. I've given them four grandkids and been good to their daughter. Um, but they're the best. They are. And my father-in-law is a pastor, and he's on vacation, so he's here today. But I remember I met her parents before I met her. They had just moved to Cincinnati um, right after her senior year of high school, and she had gone away to college, and they had started attending our church. And uh, those were the days when I was cutting my teeth and figuring out how to be a, a pastor. I was 18, but I knew what, what I wanted to be. And so um, I would go out and evangelistic outreaches, and he and I would hang out together, my father-in-law and I, and um, 
we would go to uh, soup kitchens together, and the way we did that back then is you would preach a sermon, and then you would feed the people. So the idea was that hopefully they'd hear a little bit of gospel, and then you'd give them some soup or spaghetti or something like that. And that, that's how I learned how to preach, was going there. Those poor men, uh, it was mostly men at this uh, homeless shelter, those poor men had to listen to some really, really terrible sermons from an 18-year-old <laughs> who barely could... Uh, preach himself out of a wet paper bag, but those are other stories I will tell at some other point. But uh, anyway, we got to know each other, and so we had a good relationship. I always related better to adults than I did people my own age. I was always kind of an old guy in a young person's body. Helps explain my oldest child, those of you who know him. Um, but anyway, uh, Christmas break, she came home from college, and, and we met. She introduced herself to me, and I remember going home. I was I was... 18 years old, so of course I knew everything at this point, and I remember saying to my parents this December night, Sunday night, I'm going to marry that girl. Of course, you know, my parents being wise parents were like, oh, of course you are, right? Um, but she came back then for her summer break, and we started dating. Our first date was two days after my high school graduation, and uh, with a few little bumps in the road along the way in those few months, um, it worked out. I was right. I was prophetic. Maybe the only thing I've ever been prophetic about in my life. But I remember those, those first days of dating. You know, you think you've got the world by the tail, and you're in love with each other, and you think everything's going to be perfect and great, and then, and then you learn along the way that life isn't always perfect, right? Um, those first couple years of marriage are, are tough, if we're being honest. They were fun. We had, we've always had a great marriage, but, but they were hard. I didn't know how to lead. I thought I did. I knew a lot of verses in the Bible about family and marriage and stuff. If you would have asked me when I was 18, where do you learn about marriage, I probably could have pointed you to Ephesians 5 by then, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I got married, I think I was 21 or whatever, and um, boy, I was just really immature, and I was often really unkind. Um, I, I was short. I was impatient. I was irritated. I was irritable, and... I think I was nice. I don't think I've ever not been a nice person for the most part, but, but deep kindness and graciousness, God had to form that in me over time. And as I said to you last week as we spent our time in verses 25 through 30, it wasn't until about halfway through our marriage that I recognized that it was more than just about bending to her wants, about understanding her about being kind to her. If I was going to elicit from her the submission that she wanted to, to obey Christ in giving me, if she was going to thrive as a wife, that I had to be something much more than just kind. I had to learn to lay my life down for her. I had to be a conduit so that grace would flow into the atmosphere of our home. Profound change had to happen to me over time. And that's what marriage does. Marriage breaks you down over time. We could put it this way. Marriage exposes you. Marriage shows you who you really are. Marriage shows you just how selfish you are, just how prideful you are, just how much you love yourself 
but marriage is a gift, for in the exposing, God is doing good. Now, as we will learn together today from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 33, God is not just exposing who we are, He is pointing us to a mystery, a mystery of grace. And we are not just to be intrigued by it intellectually. We are to be profoundly transformed as we understand that marriage ultimately points us to a celestial marriage, a heavenly one, an eternal one, one that has been initiated out of perfect love and one that has a trajectory toward perfect union. And one that though it is not fully consummated, yet one day will be. And gives us hope in the here and now that not only can we be exposed, but that we need not fear that. And through the exposing, we will be transformed and new heights of joy and happiness will be understood and experienced for the glory of God and for our mutual joy. And in doing so, it not only impacts the two people in a physical marriage, but it can have a permeating, profound impact, not only in our homes, but in our church and in the culture around us. Marriage is unique. For it points to the relationship that God chose to have with a sinful people who did not deserve Him, who never would have chosen Him, but one that He sovereignly initiated that He might pour out His love upon them and in doing so point to His great glory and lift them to know that though they did not deserve such love, They have been sovereignly, eternally loved and will be into eternity perpetual. And that despite our frailty, despite the fact that we are still sinful and we wander and we choose other affections, our Lord Jesus, the one who has made the church his own, will never forsake us. The verdict is in on us. We have been justified and we belong to him. And nothing can change that. Marriage is about that. And so in light of that, let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 33. We will take our time to understand the passage in its context, what it means, and then what it means for us. Therefore a man, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31, shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless to us this short but profound reading of his word. As we learned a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, wives are to respect and submit to their husbands in light of Jesus' gracious headship, modeled after the willing submission of the church to her Lord. This was Paul's opening salvo, so to speak. 
speaking to the wives, calling them to submit to their husbands just as the church submits to Christ. As we learned last week, husbands are to love their wives. This is to be a relationship of harmony. They are to do so as a reflection of the gracious, sacrificial love of Jesus for his people, the church, displaying the beauty of the one flesh union of marriage. And that is how we ended last week. Husbands are to love their wives as themselves, for Christ has made us one together, just as we are members of his body. Jesus loves the church, for we have been united to him. And this beautiful union is not just something that Paul concocted out of thin air, came up with to amplify marriage. What I am saying is that Paul didn't just come up with a clever illustration here. Paul points back to something that is revealed in the Scriptures at the very beginning of the canon of the Bible, and we will talk about that more in just a moment. So let's outline our passage for this morning. Marriage was created by God to help us understand His covenant love. And then in verse 33, In light of such grace, husbands and wives must respond in grateful worship, reflecting the wonder of the gospel. Let's begin in verses 31 through 32. Marriage was created by God to help us understand His covenant love. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Moses records for us the beginning of all things. And specifically here, in Genesis chapter 2, he recaps creation, but then he comes to the pinnacle of creation, which is the creation of the image bearers. He makes a man, he calls Adam, who will rule over his creation, bring it into submission, and delight in it, and therefore delight in its creator. But Adam at this point was alone. He had God. He had relationship. But there wasn't one that exactly corresponded to him. So the Lord God said, Genesis 2.18, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature... That was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, poetically, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father, verse 24, and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
So though Adam had God, as best we can tell, God came and hung out with Adam daily. I don't know exactly what that means, but he knew God was around. They communed together. He had his creator. He lacked nothing from, from that perspective of relationship. His vertical relationship with his creator was perfect. And yet, God wanted to give Adam horizontal relationship. Now, this should not be a surprise to us. The very nature of God, the fact that we have one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uncreated, co-equal in authority and essence. It seems to be in keeping with the very nature of God, who is a trinity, that His image bearers would have interpersonal relationships as well, though distinct. And so God gave Adam a woman. But before He did that, He made Adam review all of the animals. God made them. I'm sure He could just sort of summon them. And so He did. I sort of picture this parade I don't know how many species existed at this point, but, but they paraded in front of Adam. And he gave them names. And this wasn't because God couldn't come up with names. This wasn't because God ran out of ideas. He, he wanted Adam to, to see each one and say, that's a giraffe. I don't look like a giraffe. I don't love that giraffe. It's cool. It has a long neck. Uh, I'm amazed by it. That elephant is gigantic. By the way, he's not speaking in English back then, I know, um, for you um, nerdy theologians. I, I don't know what language it was, but it was idyllic, right? So they're, they're parading in front of him. He's amazed by them. The lions wouldn't have eaten them. He would have told them how sharp their fangs were and given them lion or whatever. But, but none of those things corresponded to him. And you have to think that as the parade went on that he was like, wait a minute. These, these animals are great, you know. I don't know, maybe he got on a zebra and rode it around and it thrilled him for a few moments, but, but he, he didn't have affection for such things. Those of you who, who love your dogs and cats and goldfish and frogs and bunnies or whatever, that's great, but they can't fulfill you emotionally. And Adam came to the point, and I think this was the purpose in all of this designed by God, that he recognized, I don't have one that's just like me. And I think that, that though it wasn't sinful, there had to be some small ache in his heart for something that was like him. And so then God puts him to sleep, and from his side, he makes the woman. You've heard this before. It has been said that God did not take a bone out of Adam's foot so that he would step on his wife and abuse her, nor did he take a bone out of his cranium so that she would rule over him, but out of his side so that she would be dear to him and be his companion. God wakes, up, uh, God wakes Adam up and, and the parade is finished, but now next to him lies one that's like him. She's not the same as him, but she corresponds to him. And then Adam got it. And whereas before he was handing out names of species, now he pins or speaks a poem. This would be his dear one. She came from him. She would be his wife. And Moses responds that this union would be unique. 
nothing would quite be like it. They would become one flesh in the eyes of God. And that initial marriage was perfect, at least for a while. And that's the way God wanted it to be. And so you look at this and you say, wow, you know, God makes everything in six days of creation. He rests on the seventh day. And then he sort of has a review period, like a debrief, like, like an inter-Trinitarian debrief. And maybe he brings in his favorite angels and they're sort of surveying what they've done. And they say, you know, this log's pretty good, but we left something out. We should, we should make him a wife. But according to Ephesians chapter 5, which Paul calls a mystery in verses 31 through 32, this had been planned. The idea, if you have your finger there in Ephesians chapter 5, you can compare this. God had a plan from the very beginning to do this very thing. Nothing ever occurs to God. God never has a better idea than the day before. God never has to clean stuff up. This was God's plan from the very beginning. Why? Well, it was to give the man companionship. It was to give humanity, the image bearers, a chance for reproduction. But according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, there was something even more profound than that. For this unique relationship that would bring companionship and, and bring reproduction that they might fill the earth after their own kind, this marital relationship, this one flesh union would point to something far greater. For, for God knew that some short days later, I don't know how long, these two people who were naked and not ashamed in any way, vertically or horizontally, there was harmony with each other and with their Creator, He knew it would not stay that way. He knew that brokenness would enter into their relationship with Him and with one another. He knew that the disease of sin would begin coursing through the veins of Adam and Eve and all of their offspring down to this day. He knew that the perfect covenantal harmony that he had with his creatures would be severed. But he had a plan. According to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, he would take a bride who had fallen from grace and played the whore and committed the most treacherous of adultery and rather than punishing her or leaving her to herself, he would pursue her in grace and wed himself to her again. The holy with the unholy. The perfect with the imperfect. The seeker with the concealer. The righteous with the unrighteous. Which means that the gospel was bound up in marriage, in the very giving of marriage, from the very beginning. Which means that when Adam spoke about this one flesh union, that this one who was taken out of his side, who was like him, but not the same as him, 
And she was dear to him in ways that no thing or no one could ever be, that he spoke better than he knew. And you would think that when God shows up in Genesis 3, which is a chapter that we meditate on quite frequently here, and speaks words of grace that one day a Redeemer will come and will crush the serpent who, who elicited disfavor and, and unbelief and pride out of these people, that, that one day that serpent would be crushed by a seed from the woman. You would think that Adam and Eve and all of their offspring would, would live in hope and live faithfully and, and wait for the Redeemer. But what is the story of the offspring of Adam and Eve? It is one of faithlessness and treachery and rebellion. And the reconciliation that God promised Adam and Eve that would come through Redeemer seems like a pipe dream as we see the story of human history unfolding in the pages of the Old Testament. Even whenever He brings the covenant people back to Himself and calls her His own Israel, calling Abraham and his offspring out of paganism, forgiving them over and over and over again, taking them out of slavery, giving them their own land, making them rich beyond measure. You would think that humanity, forgiven to such a degree, given such covenant favor, experiencing the loyalty of the Creator, despite how often they had sinned against Him, you'd think that at some point they would say, wow, what, what a gracious God. Let's, let's just, let's follow after him. Let's obey all of his laws. And there's periods of Israel's history where you see high points, sort of like pinnacles of faith, and then it sort of plateaus and then just falls off a cliff. And by the time you get to the prophets, it seems like there is no faith left in Israel at all, which brings us to Hosea chapters 1 through 3. And we will not take time to read all of them, but I want to rehearse a few thoughts. This is the passage that John read to us, at least in part, just a bit ago. If you don't know the story of Hosea, then it'll be hard for you to understand Ephesians chapter 5. Here's the basic gist. Hosea, one of God's chosen mouthpieces, one of his prophets, and not just one of the prophets who preached in Israel, but one who actually wrote, and therefore he's pretty unique. Hosea's story is a tough one. It's one that's frankly a little hard to read. Let's see how it begins. Hosea 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And the Lord first spoke to Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibleam, and she conceived and bore him a son, and then a daughter, and then another son in this first chapter. These children get names which are tough names. Jezreel first, because God's going to punish the house of Jehu. A daughter whose name will be No Mercy. Those of you who pick out really cool names for your kids, and in our generation, right, we pick out really clever names like Sebastian and Nathaniel, like old names, right, because our kids are sophisticated. Um, you would never think of that. What about this third child, this son? No mercy. How'd you like that? Running around the house. 
Why? Because Hosea's wife, Gomer, as we will learn in just a moment, would do exactly what God prophesied would happen back in verse 2. She would commit adultery. She would, she would leave Hosea. Now, when God calls Hosea to this, you'd have to think that Hosea would look at God and say, I'm, I'm not sure I heard you correctly. Um, did, did you just say that, that I, the holy man in Israel and Judah, that I should marry a woman who's not going to be faithful to me and, and then I, you want me to, to name these kids things that, that nobody would even think of naming their kids. And you want my life to be an object lesson. And I don't know exactly how this went, but God would have nodded or said yes or whatever. And, and Hosea, out of obedience, some crazy, unique guy conceded and did exactly what God said. And as we see in chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there with me, God didn't leave it that way, for he told Hosea to go get his wife. So he says in chapter 3, verse 1, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days verses that John read to us a bit ago are profound. Not only will Gomer, Hosea's wife, be restored to him, but their marriage will be a picture of what will happen to Israel. Israel will be restored to God. We see in verse 20 of chapter 2, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You shall know the Lord, and that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. He would bring Gomer back to himself and his children. And this tragic family story would be a picture of brokenness turned into redemption. And this is the background coupled with Genesis chapter 2 that Paul writes from. This picture of marriage with people, of a covenant between God and a chosen people, Paul didn't just dream this up. It's amazing if you think about it. Paul would have known the Old Testament amazingly well. It's not unlikely that he may have actually had it memorized by heart. And for decades, he had studied under the best rabbis, learning it and being able to explain it and teach it and pass it on. But it was not until Paul's momentum towards self-righteousness and destruction was arrested on the road to Damascus when he was going to kill other followers of Jesus that all of this stuff began to be unlocked for him. 
Jesus was the code breaker. Jesus was the key that unlocked all of the Old Testament for Paul. What must it have been like for Paul? Gets his sight back finally. Gets some discipleship from a Christian who'd been around a little while. And he begins to look at the Old Testament in ways that he had never before seen. Paul knew Genesis 2. Paul knew the story of Hosea. A self-righteous guy like Paul may have looked at the story of Hosea and said, well, that's really intriguing and I can explain it theologically, but he, he couldn't have gotten it. He couldn't have gotten it until he himself was rescued. And when Jesus rescued Paul and made him his own, one who had not recognized his own sinfulness but was faced full frontal with it eventually and recognized just how desperately he needed redemption and then poured out his life in the remaining decades that he had for the sake of explaining this gospel, how Paul must have been struck by grace, how Paul must have understood how God would betroth to himself one who did not deserve it and one who did not belong. Paul must have read a passage like Hosea chapter 2, verse 20 and said, Jesus has betrothed me to himself in faithfulness, one who never would have come. And it is in that light that Paul writes Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Those of us who have spouses left our fathers and mothers. We held fast to one another, and in God's sight, we became one flesh. And that's beautiful and good. I have stood at the marriage altar with a number of you and watched you make that commitment to each other. I love weddings. I love being part of weddings. But there's something going on that is more than the congregation can see. They can see the beautiful dress, the veil, all the accompanying details that have been chosen perfectly. But they can't see the profound union that God is creating. Even those of us who are doing the vows, we are the ones who are getting married. Even we can't see it. It's not something you can feel but it's something God has done. He makes us one. And this one flesh union that He alone can create is a mystery, and it is profound. And according to Paul, it refers to Christ and the church, which means that whenever a man and a woman make a commitment to one another, just as God married the first couple in Genesis chapter 2, that we are speaking better than we know, and we're speaking about things that we don't fully understand. And it means that as we live out this one flesh union, we are learning over time what it looks like to, to lay a life down for a wife if we are a husband, and to submit to a husband if we are a wife, because this pictures the gospel. This means that your marriage is bigger than you realize, more important than you realize, more profound than you realize, more transformative than you can imagine. 
and has the potential for the giving of more joy than you can comprehend. For as husbands learn to love their wives as themselves and lay their lives down sacrificially, in a sense, to die for their wife, even if not physically, metaphorically, laying aside prerogatives and, and dreams even sometimes, and using all the power that God has invested in us to leverage them on behalf of a wife. And in so doing, eliciting willing submission and respect out of such a woman. And again, as we talked about last week, there is some kind of sequence here. For, for though there is to be harmonious giving to one another in a marriage, just as Jesus is the initiator of the relationship with the church, we husbands are to be the initiator with our wives. The gracious love and strength that we leverage on behalf of our wives elicits submission and respect out of them. As we're doing this, something profound is happening. Our eyes are being lifted to the one who has restored us to himself. The one who has leveraged his strength and love, which is limitless. It is divine. It comes from the past. It's prehistoric. It, it predates any humans. It, it had design. It was sovereign, and it was full of love, shot through with grace. And there was a purpose behind it. That God the Trinity would make a world that would fall into sin. There was no surprise in this. The experiment of creating a world and dwelt by image bearers, there was no surprise to God that, that those image bearers would fall from grace. He knew they would. God created a world where there would be a fall. And yet he planned that there would be this thing called marriage. The most intimate of human relationships and in the giving of this relationship, God would teach us about his own love for his people. So this means, husbands, when you are prompted by the Spirit to leverage your strength and love on behalf of your wife, that this is to point you to the love of Jesus. We could say it this way. Your recognition of Jesus' love for you, a sinner separated by willful rebellion, Jesus' love for you and bringing you back to himself and forgiving you again and again and again should lead you to love your wife again and again and again. Not just when she's lovely, but when she's unlovely, when she's hard to love when you do have to lay aside your perspectives and your prerogatives, when you are tired, when you are weary, when you are irritated and angry and frustrated, when she doesn't submit to you, perhaps mostly then, such love in the midst of difficulty and hardship reminds us of the love of Jesus. And conversely, we could say that as you are reminded of the love of Jesus when your wife is all those things and more, you can instinctively turn to Jesus 
and I'm giving you some practical sequence here, you can instinctively turn to Jesus and say, it is not easy for me to love right now. She is not very lovely right now. And yet I, I must love her anyway. I want to love her anyway. You have to help me love her anyway, just as you have loved me. And in so doing, by the grace of God over time, she sees that. And when she is loved, when she is unlovely, it will lead her heart to willing submission and to transformation. For again, there is a sequence. Jesus initiates. Husbands respond as conduits of grace. And wives submit and respect in turn. And so, verse 33, when a husband loves his wife as himself, and a wife respects her husband as she should, we are reflecting the wonder of the gospel. This is more than just keeping the harmony in a home. It's more than just doing the right thing. This is about the glory of Jesus. And the wonder is, we get to be participants in this. This means that marriage is bigger than we think. I'm 18 and a half years in, and I'm still learning. I know way more than I did one year in, and I suspect that in another 18 years or so, I'll know more then about what it looks like to lay my life down for my wife and enjoy Jesus and trust Jesus in the process. This means that there's hope for marriage. It's not just profound, it's not just important, but, but there's hope for marriage. Jesus cares about marriage. Jesus gave us marriage on purpose, that we might worship Him and enjoy Him. This means that, that for some of us today who perhaps are not enjoying our marriages, and perhaps secretly they're in trouble, there's hope for your marriage. Jesus sees, Jesus will help. Now, he might use some people in this room to help you. In other words, if it is hidden and, and it's in trouble, you probably should get some help. You, you may not be able to clean it up on your own. But nevertheless, there is hope for your marriage. There, there is hope for the world because of marriage. What I mean is you have a profound opportunity to proclaim the gospel through your marriage. While it's possible, and I do not discourage you from doing one-off evangelism, meeting a stranger and telling them about Jesus and how he can rescue them from sin, generally speaking, people are not converted that way. Generally speaking, people are converted over time as they get to know Christians. One of the most profound impacts that you can have upon the world around you is through marriage. I was talking to um, a college pastor at another church here in town this past week. He ministers down around Ohio State. And he said, one of the most profound ways that we disciple students at Ohio State is we just have them in our home and have dinner with them. And he said, so many of them, these successful white-collar families, do not know what it looks like to have a godly family. So as I love my wife and I love my kids, it has a profound impact on these students where a lot of them come to faith because they've, they've never seen the gospel enacted. 
lived out, reflected. And so, husbands and wives, we have an opportunity with the next generation, the ones who are gathered around our dinner table, the ones who do live under our roof, we have an opportunity to see the next generation treasure Jesus. And, and one of the ways that we know we can lead them to treasure Jesus is by having godly marriages. If we're being honest, if everything was stripped away and, and we had a chance to choose one thing, we would choose that our next generation would treasure Jesus. All of us would. That's what we want. The truth of the matter is, though, we have an opportunity every day to help them toward that. The, the way, husbands, that you love your wives, the way, wives, that you respond to your husbands in submission, it points your children to Jesus. Now, they may not be able to put their finger on that in every way, but one day they will. And dads, if you have loved your wives sacrificially, consistently, though imperfectly for sure, laying your life down and leveraging your strength and love for her good, your children will remember that. Your sons will love like that. Your daughters will choose husbands like that. They cannot help but have the gospel permeate their own minds and hearts. Moms, as you submit to and respect your husbands, you are teaching boys to seek such a wife. You are teaching your children, your daughters to be such wives one day, and you are showing your children how a worshiper responds to a gracious Savior. So much of it's subtle. It's, it's really very infrequently explained as such. Perhaps we should explain it more. In other words, the reason daddy loves your mommy is because Jesus loves me. The reason that mommy respects your daddy is because we as the people of Christ owe Jesus everything and he's the greatest treasure we have. Maybe sometimes we should explain this more, but our children cannot help but be impacted by such atmosphere in a home. And then the hope is that our neighbors and our friends, as we, as we draw them close, and as I say to you probably less often than I should, we should be drawing the community into us, into our homes, and into our lives. If, if we are not consistently developing pretty intimate friendships with unbelievers, we will have no opportunity for this. But as we do so, we, we show people through our marriage something unique, something that perhaps is missing, something that is intriguing and that they long for. Marriage gives hope to the next generation and to the world around us. So, our marriages are bigger than we realized, and there is hope for marriage in our own marriages, and there is hope through marriage for the next generation and for the world around us. As we finish this little section in Ephesians chapter 5 and move on to talking about children and parents next week, which links well with what we're talking about today, I do want to say to you that we have to take this really seriously. This isn't something that we can just let go. So I implore you to trust Jesus. I implore you to work hard on your marriages. I 
implore you to, to be humble and get help if you need it. I implore those of you who are sort of newer at this, maybe you haven't been married a long time, I implore you to surround yourself with people who have godly marriages, maybe who are a little bit further down the road than you that you can learn from. Uh, I implore you husbands, ask good questions. You don't have the world by the tail. Go find a guy you respect and hang out with him periodically and ask good questions. Um, you younger wives, find godly moms and wives and, and ask them good questions and, and hang out and talk. One generation can impact the next. And may God use our marriages to not only bring us deep joy, but to point us back to himself that we might enjoy him. Because that's the point. I say to you who perhaps are not married and want to be, that you can trust Jesus. It's interesting that Paul writes the most profound things about marriages in all the Bible, and yet he wasn't married, at least at this point. Paul trusted God with the course of his life, and I call you to do the same. I say to those of you who maybe aren't married and don't want to be, that that's okay too. Again, Paul wasn't married and could see what marriage pictured. One day, according to the Lord Jesus, there won't be marriage. I struggle with that, if I'm being honest. I hope there's a loophole for me because I'd like to spend eternity with Whitney. But as we learned about last week in Revelation chapter 19, there's coming a marriage supper, one that is far more grand, one that is far more life-giving, one that will lead us to heights and vistas of joy that even the best marriage here on earth can't compare to. Jesus will consummate this marriage with his people, and he will present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we will one day be perfectly and wholly without blemish. Our marriages can, can move toward that in the here and now. They will never fully reach that, but as we trust Jesus and respond to his grace, we can get a foretaste of it, increasingly degree by degree, so may God be faithful to do that in our marriages here, that degree by degree we may taste new heights of joy and love and transformation in the here and now, so that one day when the perfect marriage is realized and we celebrate together with the one who has betrothed us to himself, the faithful to the unfaithful, the perfect to the imperfect, the righteous to the unrighteous, the unblemished with the blemished, one day we will be with him forever, and we will look back on our marriages and be thankful. So let us use them now for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now I pray that for your glory that you are due and for the joy of your children that we will take seriously this covenant of marriage, that through it we will worship you, that because of it, we will delight in you. And that through it, you will transform not only our own hearts, but our children's and the world around us. So please, for you are due worship, you deserve it. May our marriages reflect your glory and may we enjoy you through them. And we pray that you will hasten the day whenever the imperfect will fully be perfect, when perfect harmony with our Creator and Savior will be realized. 
And while we wait, help us, we pray, to be faithful. And help us, we pray, to find our deepest joy in you, the one who has betrothed us to himself. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing.